Hey everyone, this is a book about getting rid of bad science, which I define as any science that disagrees with your political beliefs. The book is called Science Fictions, so I was disappointed that it didn't have a single stormtrooper. It's an excellent breakdown of how to spot shoddy or even fraudulent science. It's by Stuart Ritchie. And this is The Book Pile. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and it recently occurred to me how crazy it is that as a kid I believed everything Bill Nye said, but he never actually taught what the difference was between a scientist and just a science guy. (laughs) And I'm David Vance. A couple years ago, the book Why We Sleep changed my life. Then it changed my life again when I found out it was full of lies. (laughs) This is the book I read to never be duped again. All right, we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating and review. Arthur Mom says, My husband and I have gotten hooked on the book pile. We found it so entertaining and interesting slash addicting that we began binging all the episodes. Now, I would even listen to Kellen and Dave discuss the nutrition facts on the back of a cereal box. (laughs) Well, thanks, Arthur Mom. And it's interesting that you say that because fat, sodium, dietary fiber, potassium, sugar, riboflavin, (laughs) if you know what I mean. Callan, do you ever find that total fat, 2 grams, 2% daily value? (laughs) Well, I UPC symbol, 15372. All right, this is the last full week to buy my book on my Kickstarter. The link is in the episode description. And by now you've heard me talk about it a lot. So my promo is to talk about it less. (laughs) So, Kellen, I found this book super helpful. It's all about how to spot bad science, like evolution. No, I'm kidding. But (laughs) the message of this book is basically don't believe everything you read. And here are some tools to be a more informed science reader. But Kellen, what did you think of the book? <laughs> well, I had a I had a very similar reaction to it. I found the book very useful and a little dangerous. Uh-huh. Because uh yeah, if absorbed correctly, I think it encourages specific steps you can take to filter out bad research if you really are objectively looking for scientific data. Mm-hmm. But it could be dangerous because I also see a lot of people reading it going Let's just swallow this bleach for our health because every scientist lies. (laughs) I also feel like this book isn't anti-science. This book is using science to make science better. Sure, yeah. Which I think is an important distinction. Mm -hmm. Finally, our next two books are Project Hail Mary and then for Valentine's Day, Romeo and Juliet. Because nothing says true love like marrying your teenage crush and then stabbing yourself. Well, now they don't need to read that one. (laughs) But please do read or listen to Project Hail Mary. Again, it's one of my new favorite science fiction books of all time. So if you're into sci-fi, if you can listen to it, because there's there's a fun thing that they do with one of the characters on Audible that I can't explain right now because it'll give part of the book away. But check it out because we are going to be talking all about it. All right, without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from science fictions. All right, lesson one, use a bigger sample size. This is a short one. You ever see a news story that says, watching TV for an hour with your family is linked to greater wealth. And you're like, huh, that's cool. And you look at the sample size and it says, this study was done on four men and a dog. (laughs) (laughs) I, I feel like you see this over and over where... 
A graduate student does a study on like eight people. Uh-huh. And if the finding is weird enough, even if it's totally random, it'll end up on the cover of Newsweek. <laughs> so for heaven's sakes, do studies on more people. Even the family feud goes to a hundred persons. <laughs> so maybe scientists could do a little more work than Steve Harvey. <laughs> Steve Harvey Oswald. <laughs> He's the guy who killed Steve JFK Jr. <laughs> There's also the fact that even if you have a big sample size, but you're in an American college town, you're drawing very specific conclusions. Have you ever heard the acronym WEIRD? Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic? Huh. It's this idea that all of these psych experiments are done on people who are mostly those five things, mm. and then we generalize them like they're about the whole world. <laughs> It'd be like you do a study at Stanford, and then you said, the whole world are sports fans of Stanford. <laughs> <laughs> all right, lesson two. Good science is replicable, like McNuggets. <laughs> Or this McNuggets joke. So here's what Michael Crichton has to say about what he just calls bad science. Quote, science consensus is irrelevant. What is relevant is reproducible results. Consensus is invoked only in situations where the science is not solid enough. Nobody says that the consensus of scientists agrees that E equals MC squared. Nobody says the consensus is that the sun is 93 million miles away. It would never occur to anyone to speak that way. End quote. Although it will to me now. I can't wait to interrupt a conversation at a party with, I mean, Most scientists do agree that we are made up of tiny little things called atoms. (laughs) So Richie seems to agree with this principle to a point, saying, quote, that's what sets science apart from other ways of knowing about the world. If it won't replicate, it's hard to say if what you've done was scientific at all. And to me, the danger isn't just scientific consensus. It's also the opposite. Singular fraudulent test results that go not only unquestioned, but are trusted. He tells the story of a psychology professor, Daryl Bem. By the way, Bem means good in Portuguese. Also in Portuguese, it's pronounced bang, which is a lot more fun to say. So this guy, he conducted an experiment where he had test subjects sit in front of a computer screen that had a curtain on it, and the subject had to guess what was behind it. And he claimed that the results came back showing that people guessed right only 30% of the time if something ordinary was behind the curtain, like a chair. But if it was something (laughs) sexual, they guessed right over 50% of the time. Like an image of me sitting in a chair. So his findings were published in the Journal of Social Psychology and made headlines and bang, had his 15 minutes of fame on the Colbert Report. But the problem arose when the author of this book and two jealous buddies of his, no, and two other professors each conducted the same experiment separately. So three different experiments. And they each came back with the same results of no actual results, meaning that there was nothing to show that people guess any topic of image more than anything else. But I guess we also have to ask the question, just how sexy were their images? Yeah. Maybe it just wasn't enough to invoke clairvoyance. <laughs> what if the way Bame conducted the study was saying, is the image behind the left curtain 
Or the right curtain. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the even bigger problem was when Richie and his colleagues submitted their findings to the same journal, it rejected their efforts, saying that that it had a policy of, quote, never publishing studies that repeated a previous experiment. And therein lies the biggest problem. It's a real double problem, which was the name of my two-person band in college. What are we to do if there are scientists fudging numbers for attention and then publications that have rules stopping anyone else from double-checking the results? Well, I think it's even worse than that. I don't even think he necessarily fudged numbers. I think often you just get a random positive result due to chance. Mm. But then if all the negations are unpublished, then people just think, well, this is truth. Sure. So the point of all this, good science means that you've tested something in a way that anyone else could reproduce the same experiment and get the same results. If I drop an apple here and you drop an apple from the same height in the Czech Republic, they'll both measurably hit the ground at the same time. But you'll probably use a metric system because you think you're better than me. The point is, (laughs) it's good science because it can be double-checked, which is also the name of our rival band from the Czech Republic. (laughs) I do have a question, going back to that Michael Crichton consensus quote, like I I think of the tobacco debate, where there was a lot of powerful science saying that tobacco caused cancer, and yet the tobacco companies paid some very high-profile scientists to tell everyone that the data was inconclusive, and it muddied the waters for a really long time. When you're trying to convince the layperson who might not get all the scientific arguments, I don't know how to convince them other than to say, well, yeah, most scientists think tobacco causes cancer. You know what I mean? It's hard, but at that point, it's more of a social issue than it is hard science. And that that is the difficult conversation because you can play it from the other end, too. The EPA was able to create non-smoking policies in states because of all the soft science around how secondhand smoking kills, which there was never any reproducible evidence. Wait, is there really not? There isn't. But I also wouldn't argue because I don't want people smoking in you know, chilies. (laughs) But to me, there is a very big difference between what hard science is and then how we utilize conversations to create policy. And I don't think that those things are always married, but scientific consensus has, has killed millions of people. I'm not just scientists, you know, who were brave enough to say that the earth revolves around the sun when the consensus <laughs> was that the sun was at the center of the universe, but also like eugenics. Yeah, and like population of, bomb stuff. All of that was scientific consensus. The fact that scientists said that nothing would grow in Hiroshima for 60 to 80 years and there was fruit, there were melons growing there the following year. Has it occurred to you that maybe those melons were testicles. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in this weird place where I don't know exactly what I believe. Because I look at things like eugenics, and I'm hesitant of an institution just handing down guidelines and saying, this is truth. But then I also look at people, and I'm wary of just every idiot doing exactly what they want to. (laughs) And I don't know what the right approach is. (laughs) Lesson three. Beware of p-hacking and other tricks. I know p-hacking sounds like what a Silicon Valley guy would call it when, for efficiency, he starts wearing a diaper. (laughs) 
The basic <laughs> idea is there are things researchers can do that make their studies look better than they actually are. So real quick, I'm going to give a comedian's definition of a p-value. And by comedian's definition, I mean I may be wrong. So say that I am doing a study on whether Kellen's stand-up causes liver failure. <laughs> and I run the study. And yep, sure enough, a lot of people get liver failure after they listen to his stand-up, and I get back a p-value of 0.05 or 5%. So here's what that means. That means if I'm wrong and Kellen's comedy does not cause liver failure, the odds of me getting this many people with liver failure would only be 5%. So, you know, it basically says the lower my p-value, the more I should think that something's going on here. Mm. Now, what the book is saying is that there's all kinds of ways to get a low p-value that you probably don't deserve. And remember... Researchers want that low p-value because it helps them get published, which helps them get tenure, which helps them achieve their dreams of giving your kids political beliefs that will drive you crazy. <laughs> so, so here's some of the sneaky p-value tricks. One is you collect data until you have a p-value of 0.05, and then you just stop right then. You don't risk messing that up. We mentioned this before. It's like playing basketball, but you decide when the game is over. And wouldn't you know it, the game's over as soon as you have the lead. Another trick is you analyze a ton of things. So say I find Kellen's comedy doesn't cause liver failure, but then I look at 30 other things and I find out, you know what? It does cause gum disease with a p-value of 0.05. Well, that p-value means way less if I looked at 30 random things. Or here's another fun trick. If you don't get a good p-value, just look at every group in your study and see if there's something. So, Kellen, you ever read a news article that's like, study finds chocolate cures cancer, and then you read the fine print and it says, among right-handed Colombian women aged 19 to 23 and a half. <laughs> Anytime you see that, there's a very good chance the researchers found nothing, and then they were like, tear this data apart till we find something publishable. <laughs> All right. Lesson four, let's kill publication bias. Kill is a strong word. I just mean let's stop the beating heart of publication bias. <laughs> let's sneak up on publication bias and dump poison into its tea. Let's slip the gullet of publication bias <laughs> until its skewed findings cool. drip all over the floor. <laughs> a torrent of faulty My data that sprays on the walls. <laughs> <laughs> so publication bias is the tendency that science journals have to approve studies submitted based off of flashy graphs or extreme results or even just a sparkly title. The potential groundbreaking new science of sociohydrology. That's a real one. And for you non-scientists out there, the term sociohydrology, I believe, means friend water. <laughs> The point is... Wait, what is it, though? It has to do with cultures and their relationships with the surrounding water. Oh, like in Avatar. Yes. <laughs> the point is, even editors at science journals making their selections aren't immune to clickbaity headlines. And new science is a huge buzz phrase. I went to Google Scholar, which is a source for science papers on the World Wide Web, if you ever visit that thing. And I searched the term, the new science of, and it returned 9 million results. No. <laughs> That's just titles of papers and books. Wow. 
in scientific abstracts, which is essentially the quick summary under the title of a science paper, the words promising, innovative, robust, unprecedented, and groundbreaking have all increased exponentially since the 1970s when scientists saw that these words were hitting more. A 2015 analysis that collected this data also discovered a trend that showed that by the year 2153, every abstract will contain the word novel. (laughs) (laughs) And aside from grabby Mad Men titles, the fact that a study promises big results is just bad incentive because it motivates scientists to look for the results that they need rather than just objectively observe any results that come in. It'd almost be like you're at a party and you've lost your car keys and everyone's helping you find it, but there's a reward for your car keys, so everyone's trying to convince you that what they have is your car keys. (laughs) (laughs) So Richie presents a solution that you could have a journal that approved of the idea of a study and committed to publishing it no matter how the results eventually came out. And that way, Mm. there's no incentive for specific results. And the priority would then be placed more on the integrity of the method of the study rather than working to beautify the findings in post. Oh, yeah. As much as I hate it, I get why they don't do that. Because who wants to read the article that says, people can't read minds even when a picture has people kissing? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I hate it. But from a business perspective, I understand why journals have not been doing that. (laughs) Sure. Dave is the problem. So my (laughs) takeaway from all this is that you should tell all your friends about the book pile because it is a robust, unprecedented, groundbreaking <laughs> socio-hydraulic podcast. All right, random facts. The thing I'm about to say, I've thought about saying it on like 20 different books, but I've always stopped myself. But I'm going to say it on this one. If you are interested in this topic, you should definitely read the whole book because there's just so much nuance we can't cover in a half-hour comedy podcast. Mm. Now, I feel bad that this retroactively implies we were able to cover all the nuance of being a young Iranian girl during the revolution. (laughs) (laughs) But again, there's just so much in this book that we can't explain right now. So if you want to know just how Scottish this author is, his full name is Stuart James Ritchie. He studied at the University of Edinburgh. The name of his academic advisor was Robert McIntosh. (laughs) And Science Fictions was runner-up for the Royal Society Prize for Science Books, which he lost to a guy named Merlin. (laughs) I know I've mentioned this a couple times, but there's a hilarious Twitter account called Just Says In Mice. (laughs) It reposts science articles and makes them more accurate by saying, in mice. (laughs) Here's some examples. Researchers discover e-cigarettes cause cardiac arrhythmia. In mice. (laughs) This popular anti-aging goo can help regrow muscle. In mice. And on that one, the article has a photo of a human woman flexing her arms. (laughs) I found out from this book that only 10% of the scientific physical results that we get from mice actually end up transferring over to equal human data. So I'm not sure 
why we keep doing it. <laughs> Let's just test on criminals. All right, my next point. <laughs> One cardiologist, Deepak Daz, was fired from the University of Connecticut for faking data in 19 studies championing the heart health benefits of Reservatrol, which is a substance abundant in red grape skins and thus red wine. <laughs> but falsification aside... I always think it's funny when winos are like, I drink it for the antioxidants. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, grapes have those too. <laughs> it's like saying, you know what's healthy about vodka is that there's lots of water in it. <laughs> he talks about how some of these scientists just, you know, lie. <laughs> You look at the uh, the famous Lancet paper on the MMR vaccine claiming that there might be a link to autism, the one that sparked that whole movement. Well, first of all, some of the data was just a lie. So the paper claims all these kids started having autism symptoms shortly after the vaccine. Well, some of them had symptoms before the vaccine, some mm. had symptoms months later, and some were never diagnosed with autism at all. And on top of that, the lead researcher does not disclose that, one, he was being paid by a lawyer who planned to sue the makers of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. And two, he also didn't disclose that he had applied for a patent for his own individual measles vaccine. So if MMR Whoa. stopped, he could have made a lot of money. <laughs> also, 10 of the other 11 scientists that published it with him retracted it afterwards. <laughs> I want to give my last thought, which is... Like I said before, I don't think this book is anti-science. I think this book is using science to make science better. But again, I'm scared of a situation where someone listens to this podcast and uses it as an excuse to dismiss any study whose conclusion they disagree with. <laughs> Finally, our new feature, this book could also be called. This book could also be called Why We Sleep, because it contains as much accurate sleep science as why we sleep. <laughs> it could be called... Don't believe everything you read, except for this. <laughs> and the sun orbits the earth, asterisk, in Canadian women ages 20 to 25. <laughs> All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from science fictions. One, beware of p-hacking and other tricks. Two, good science is replicable. Three, use a bigger sample size. Four, let's kill publication bias. And five... Never compete against a Scottish wizard. Mm -hmm.